All right. I managed to turn my mic on, and you can come on back, and you would open your Bibles. We're going to go basically two places here today. We've got just a few minutes here to handle two chapters. Two chapters. Can you believe two chapters? Well, here's the trick. On Easter, we did the last chapter. Did you know that? On Easter, we did Luke 24. So although we're going to refer to it today, we're not exactly going to exhaustively cover it. We're going to cover Luke 23 today. So we're going to uh, be there, and you're going to stick your finger or a bookmark or something as you study in Luke 23, that's where we'll look, but also Isaiah 53. Those are the two places we're going to be, Isaiah 53 and Luke 23, but actually, I'm sort of fudging a little bit. We got to complete Luke 22. So do me a favor and turn with me to Luke 22, verse 63, and I'll pray. And we'll quiet our hearts and get ready to receive what the Lord has for us today. You know, I just wonder if you're here and you don't know if you're going to heaven. (laughs) You can know you're going to heaven. And what we're about ready to talk about here today cinches that, (laughs) nails it down, (laughs) makes it a drop-dead, deadlocked truth that you can know that you're going to heaven. Because we are at Luke 23, which is really the high point, the climax, the greatest place of all his story, history. This is the high point of all history right here. You want to know what life's about? Here it is. You don't know where you're, you fit in life? Well, you will after this, I think. But if you don't know you're going to heaven, Jesus says you can know. <laughs> Jesus tells us you can know. And all his disciples knew it after this. In fact, when he was leaving, in verse 20, or chapter 24, verse 46, he said to them, thus that it was written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. This was all necessary for him to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, to die and rise again. Why? And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at West Elizabeth. But really it says Jerusalem, but now we're here in West Elizabeth. So what should we be talking about over and over again, the Lord tells us? All of it comes back to this, that he died on the third day and rose again. Or he died and rose again on the third day, sorry. And that we should, in response to that, or we can, that's a better way, in response to that, repent. Not just change our mind, but change our whole lives. I grew up thinking I was basically good. The Bible tells us I'm a sinner and my heart is deceptively wicked. And Ezekiel tells me, tells me that any soul, or any soul that sins 
or any person that sins shall surely die. Have separation from God. Who here wants to be separated from God for eternity? None of you would put your hands up. Well, the Bible tells us that you and I, we must repent. That just means change our mind. Come back. Say, I am a sinner and come to God. And we have, if we're trusting in Christ, listen to this, forgiveness of sins. That's it. You believe in your heart. You confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. He died and rose again. You repent and come back to God in faith. You shall be saved. That's it. That's the whole story. It's, it's, the, height, it's the height of history. Well, let's start with this. Verse 63, chapter 22. Now, the men who held Jesus, remember, Peter had just denied him, and Jesus looked at him, and that's where we left off last time, that I was here. The men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him, and having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, prophesy. I want you to notice, folks, all through the uh, uh, teaching here today, how the people, even up to the last minutes of Jesus' life, wanted miracles. And I like miracles, and you like miracles, but the point is you can't base your faith on miracles, folks. How do I know that? (laughs) Well, there was this group of people called the Israelites, and God did every miracle known to man, And at the end of all of those miracles, I mean, come on, split the Red Sea. I mean, seriously, folks. Manna, God, give me a sign. Just give me a sign. And manna comes from heaven every day. And at the end of all of that and more, many more miracles, it says that the people didn't believe in Exodus. So miracles, if you're just basing your faith on miracles, if you're chasing miracles, you're going to sometime be disappointed. Don't do that. Base it on who God is really. Love God just for who he is. And when the miracles come, just stand up and praise the Lord. But base your life, your Christian life, not on the miracles. But but I'm not downplaying miracles. I like miracles. So do you. But here they say, prophesy, man. Who is the one who struck you? Give us a sign if we can just see some stuff. And many other things they blasphemously, blasphemously spoke against him. And then, as soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council, saying, If you're the Christ, tell us. And he, but he said to them, If I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if, also, uh, if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. In other words, you're... Speaking here is disingenuous. Your questions, you, you, you don't care about whether I'm the son of God or not. You, you, you don't care how I do these things or not. You're asking disingenuous questions, and Jesus knows it. You see, what Jesus always loves from you and I is just honesty. <laughs> don't, don't walk around, well, you know, I'm Irish and I get angry. No, you're a sinner and you're angry. It's not because you're Irish. Well, I'm German, and I just tend to fly off the handle. No, you're a sinner, and so am I. Here, he knew, he he just likes authenticity. And hereafter, he says in verse 69, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. 
Now, they knew when he said this that he was claiming to be the Messiah. You know why I know that? Because it refers, I won't look it up today, but you can go there. It refers to Psalm 110 verse 1, which is a messianic utterance there or writing or scripture about where the Messiah will be or where the Son of Man will be. He'll sit on the right hand of the power of God. He's in the prime spot. Then they all said, are you then the Son of God? See, they knew Psalm 110. Get it? And so he said to them, you rightly say that I am. And this is what these folks bring to Pilate when they take him to Pilate. And you can look at that in John 19, verse 7. And they said, what further testimony do we need? For we have heard it from ourselves from his own mouth. Now listen, if you're new here, you didn't come to Easter, that's okay. But we went through on Good Friday and then Easter time, we went through all six trials of Christ or that, that uh, they gave to Christ on this night. This is one of those trials in the morning. So you got to read all of the Gospels together to get all six. You got to read all the Gospels together to get all seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. You're not going to see them all in Luke. You're not going to see them all in Mark. You're not going to see them all in Matthew and John. You're going to see them only when you read the Gospels together. And that should give you great encouragement that this story wasn't contrived. Because as lawyers, you know what we know, when people come and they get up on the stand and they say the exact same thing over and over again, we're like, yeah, they've been talking to each other. They're lying. They're, they're not telling the truth. No, you, you like it when each person fills in a different detail. I always, you know that game you play when you were kids where you slap your hands? And I... I don't know, my mind works funny, but that's how I see the Gospels. It's all the same, but there's little parts sticking out in each Gospel, and that's good. Well, here it comes. You know, um, half of the trick of reading the Bible is just finding out who the players are. I remember when I started first reading the Bible, I would get to places like this and go, what? Romans? Who's Pontius Pilate? Who's Herod? And if you know those things, hopefully we're going to talk about them a little bit today and clear some of that up, it really gives you a greater understanding of what Jesus did. Well, here it goes. Luke chapter 23. Then the whole multitude of them arose and led them to Pilate, or led him to Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, we found this fellow perverting the nation. Now remember, folks, I told you that the first thing that they accused him of to Pilate was that he was the son of God. But remember, Pontius Pilate's a Roman governor uh, uh, stationed in Caesarea in Judea in that area. He stayed in a beach town. Of course he did. I mean, right? He didn't go inland to Jerusalem. He stayed in Caesarea right on the beach, Mediterranean Sea. He's no dummy, right? That's probably what we'd all do. But when he came, he had to come down during the feasts because the Romans wanted to keep the peace. And here's this Roman governor, and they initially said, well, he's saying he's the son of God. But what would that matter to a Roman governor? So they switched their story. 
I don't know, you don't know, maybe you do, maybe you don't, a lot about criminal law, but there's one fundamental principle of criminal law that you like to spout when you watch Fox News or MSNBC and get mad. What happened to due process? And due process, part of it is the criminal has a right to know what he's being charged with by the government. Well, look what happened just between two verses here. Well, it's in John 19, really, but they switched their indictment. You can't do that in the middle of a criminal proceeding. What am I charged with? It's this. I mean, no, it's that. I mean, no, it's not this, it's that. Well, what do, how do I defend myself? So I, what I'm trying to point out to you is they threw all rules aside here because they wanted to get him that bad. And the funny part about this is is that Jesus is the one that was always in control. That's what the scriptures say. Don't ever read this thinking Jesus got in trouble and the wheels fell off of his life and he just had to succumb to it. That's not it. Let me read you something from Acts. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attended by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Here it comes. Ready? Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Let me read it for you again. He was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of a God, Acts 2.22 and 23. Never read this again, that he got in trouble and he just he got painted into a corner and had to give up. He's the one in control. Well, so they begin to accuse him with a different charge, something you shouldn't do or can't do. We found this fellow perverting the nation because, see, this would more appeal to a Roman governor's sense of justice. Who, what does he care about Israel-Jewish religion? He cares about the kingdom of Rome. Well, he, we found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. Folks, that's a lie. You all know the scripture. I don't hardly even have to say it to you. They asked him, well, should we pay taxes or not? He said, well, bring me the coin. Whose mark is on there? Oh, Caesar's. He said, oh, well, then give taxes to Caesar. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar. He actually said, pay the taxes. They're lying right there. That's a lie to get him. They perverted the nation and forbidden to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Well, then Pilate asked him, saying, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, it is as you say. So Pilate, look at this, said to the chief priests in the crowd, well, I find no fault in this man. Now that's interesting. You understand that Pontius Pilate was in trouble at this time with Rome, his own country. You get that, right? He had made two blunders in the Jewish world that Rome was upset about. One was he took taxes from the temple and built an aqueduct, which was a great thing, but the Jews got mad because it was their temple taxes he stole from, and Rome wasn't happy. He did another thing. He marched into the temple mount with these banners, and it had a picture of the Caesar up there as if Caesar was God, and the Jews freaked, rightly so. They, what, he, he's not God. Our God is God. And that upset Rome, so Pontius Pilate is on real shaky ground. He has no more strikes left with Rome, nothing to get back. But he's like, guys, 
help me out here. I don't find any fault in this man. And look in verse 14. Look in verse 14. I have found no fault in this man concerning these things. Look in verse 22. Then he said to them in the third time, what evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. Now, folks, this is another interesting thing about this story. You understand from extra-biblical history, right, that the Romans stripped the Jewish leaders and nation of their right to administer the death penalty. You got that? But what's fascinating is, in the book of Acts, they go ahead and do it anyway to Stephen. The Jews do, right? Everybody tracking with me? Everybody tracking? So why here were they so concerned? Here's why I think they were so concerned. So that it couldn't be said that the Jews put him to death, but that Jewish people and Roman people who are Gentile people put him to death. In other words, the whole world put him to death. In other words, you folks, me, us, we... It's because of our sin. We can't pick out one group or it's because of us. The whole world needed the death of Jesus. Well, are you the king of the Jews? And he said, well, it is as you say. And he says, I can't find any fault in him. But they were the more fierce, saying he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. Now, folks, you read that and that does nothing to you. But to Pontius Pilate, it does a lot because as he's having his staff meetings, he's going, how's Galilee? And the people of Rome, the, the, the governors up in Rome, the, the, the leaders up in Rome are like, oh man, there's some insurrection up there. There's a whole bunch of zealots and things are really revving up. And so when he mentions Galilee, they're doing it on purpose to trigger Pontius Pilate to get him to kill. And he's like, oh shoot, Galilee again? When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And he's like, yes, I have an out. I have an out. Oh, thank goodness. He's a Galilean. This is going to be trouble. This is going to be a sticky situation, but he's a Galilean. That means I can give him over to Herod. Which Herod does he give him over to? He gives him over to one of the Herods named Antipas, who was the one who killed John the Baptist. That's this one. Who's Herod Antipas? Herod Antipas is an Idumean. He comes from Esau, Jacob and Esau. He's an Idumean, and this, his family's dynasty became a puppet of the Romans. And they allowed in fourths, quarters, the Herods to, to kind of sit over them, uh, over these different areas of Israel, as, you know, overseers, kings, the, the dynasty, they were the kings, but Rome was the backing. They ruled with an iron fist. And they dominated the whole Mediterranean area. So, in other words, they were partners, but Herod and Pontius Pilate hated each other at this time. But he's like, yes, he's a Galilean. That means he has jurisdiction. Go send him over to Herod. So, 
he goes over, and as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now, when Herod saw Jesus, look at this again, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracles done by him. That's the way we are. Base your life in faith in God. Love the giver more than the gifts. Come to the place where you can just love the Lord, no matter if he gives you great circumstances or there aren't such great circumstances. And if you don't know the cause of those circumstances, come to Job on Wednesday night. There's a lot of causes of those circumstances. But whatever, do you love God for God? Or do you love him because he gives you stuff? By the way, again, time out. We love miracles. But that's not what we are here for. We're here for him. And when miracles happen, oh, we recognize they're from him. Okay. Then he questioned him, verse 9, with many words, but answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. So you see you're going back and forth between all these players. Roman, Pontius Pilate, and his armies, Herod, an Idumean, an Edomite from Esau, who are cousins of the Jews, so to speak, but are hand in hand with the Romans. And now you have the Jewish leaders, the chief priests and the scribes, and they vehemently accuse him. And then Herod, with his his men of war, uh, treated him with contempt and mocked him and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe. And sent him back to Pilate. When you read that and you're a born again believer, ooh, mocked him. That's what we do when we live according to the world. We mock him and we ray him in this robe and we send him back. And that very day, Pilate, verse 12, and Herod became friends with each other for previously they had been at enmity with each other. Well, verse 13, then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests. See, I think it's helpful. A Roman guy calls together or calls a a, a meeting with the Jewish leaders, the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and he says to them, you have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. Again, he's innocent. I don't know much about due process. I'm not trying to impress you because I'm a lawyer, but I know if the guy's innocent, he shouldn't be indicted. Even I know that. And not only did Pontius Pilate think he was innocent, but verse 15, no, neither did Herod. For I sent you back to him, and indeed nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore scourge him, chastise him, and release him. For it was necessary for him to release one to them at the feast. That was the custom, to release somebody who was held at the feast. And he's like, well, man, if I just scourge him, which is so awful, the whipping, ah, they'll for sure let Barabbas go. I mean, come on, Barabbas is a murderer and a robber and an insurrectionist. Of course they're going to let Barabbas go. So I'll, I'll just appease them. I'll appease the crowd. You know, when you read this, 
Think of it in this way. This chapter and the next chapter show us, and this isn't the right way of saying it, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. God at his absolute most best divine and man at his worst. And one of the things that is really tricky and bad and dark is just to appease the crowd. And here, because he has power, and because he doesn't know what to do and he's confused, even though the man's innocent, he chooses to have the man scourged, Jesus, whipped and beaten and his back just bloodied and like ribbons. And they all cried out at once, verse 48, saying, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. I can see, can't you? Pontius Pilate just going, gulp. Oh, no. I thought for sure they would get rid of this one. But now they've chosen Barabbas to be released, who had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city and for murder, and it also tells us robbery in John. Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus, again called out to him, but they shouted, saying, crucify him, crucify him. And then he said to them the third time, why? What evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. A beating, a mocking, spitting, plucking out the beard. That doesn't say it in the Gospels. It says it in Isaiah. Isaiah tells us that he was marred beyond visage. You couldn't even recognize him. Mocked and beaten. I'll chastise him. Going along with the crowd. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. So Pilate gave sentence that should be as they requested. He succumbed. He gave in. He has the power not to do that, but he gave in. And he released to them the one they requested, who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison, but he delivered Jesus to their will. There it is. He gives Jesus into their hands. You know at this point, Pilate washes his hands in the, uh, of this and says that he's innocent and that these are the people that are making him do it. Now, we come to something very interesting. A guy just comes like a, out of the blue. It's just the way of the Lord, isn't it? Think back to how you got saved. Just think about it. Did somebody share with you somewhere? <laughs> somebody, somebody shared with me at a football meeting. Are you kidding me? I'm there to learn, you know, X's and O's. <laughs> My coach at the time, if you'd have said there's one guy in the world that would never let a Christian speaker come in here and speak to our football team, you'd say that was this coach. No offense, if you're watching anybody. You'd say there's no way he'd let. I don't even know how the guy got there, the guy from Campus Crusade. I have no idea. No idea. Well, I know it's the Lord, but it just, it just doesn't even compute. I, I can't even understand it. And here comes this guy, and he shares the gospel in a football meeting of all things. And, you know, you're too cool to tell anybody you're interested so you just kind of scribble 
make sure nobody's looking, yeah, I'd love a follow-up meeting. And you make sure you put it in the bucket real fast so nobody sees. And then they follow up. And that's how it starts. Here you go. You, you see this guy. He lives 800 miles away from Jerusalem. This guy named Simon the Cyrenian. Where's Cyrene? Cyrene? It's in northern Africa. And the message is, <laughs> you're like, why do I keep, maybe you're saying to yourself, why, why am I keep coming in here? I don't, I'm, I don't know if I'm saved. I, see, here's the thing. God appointed you to be here. <laughs> or God appointed you to hear that gospel it's for you now to respond. Here, Simon the Cyrenian, he's just coming from the country of Africa. Why is he coming? Because it's the Passover. And he's coming back to uh, Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Folks, he came 800 miles. Some of us can't get up for church, and we live four miles from the church. He came 800 miles. He came to celebrate Passover. He was from Africa. He was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross. Now, what, what a Roman soldier would do is they would just coincidentally, I'm putting quotes around it, it wasn't coincidence, they would take their sword and they would put it on your back, and they'd say, hold on here. And if you felt that, you stopped. Because if you didn't, <clears throat> and these Romans picked this guy out of the crowd just coincidentally. No, not just coincidentally. They pick him out of the crowd, and he comes. He, he's going to go to the festival, and they say, you carry the cross because you know Jesus is too. They don't say this, but Jesus was too exhausted and beaten to do it. Simon the Cyrene, he's coming, and he's just, you know, he's going to go to the festival, and he, he must have been saying to himself, uh, you know, I got more important. <laughs> I go into the festival, man. The Passover's now. It's sort of like what we do. <laughs> the cross? Who's got time for that? I have boats and water and golf and this hobby and that hobby and this TV show and that thing and my kids are in every gymnastic class known to man or woman and I can't, I, I don't have time for the cross. I got more important things to do. And at the very moment, probably, that's going through Simon the Cyrenian's mind. Listen to this. The cross of Christ is laid on his back. Jesus told us that in order to have real, true life, just life abundantly, just pouring out of you, you want to have real life, he said, pick up your cross daily and follow me. Forget the distractions, the boats and the golf clubs. They can come and you can still do them. No one's saying that. But don't make that the major thrust of your life. Lay the cross of Christ on your back and come with me and follow him. And he does it. And a great multitude of people, verse 27, followed him. And women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus turned to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed, the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, wombs that never bore, and breasts which never nurse. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For, listen, here's the, here's the punchline. If they do these things now in the green wood, what will be done when it's dry and there's nothing? In other words, 
I'm going away. You have me now. Know and understand what's happening now because in the future, it's going to be really dry. And you know, because we've been talking about this, 40 years after this time, the Romans walk into Jerusalem and destroy it and destroy the people. And they take several thousand slaves to Rome and they murder Jews. And he says, you have me now. Pay attention now. That's what he's saying to you today. Put the cross on your back and live life like it was intended, fully ablaze for me, he's saying. Well, there were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, that's Latin. It means skull. The Greek word is like cranium or cranium, right? And the Aramaic is another word you know that's Golgotha, just so you know that. But here's this place called Calvary. There they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. What's that purpose? What's the purpose for the criminal on the right on the left? It's designed to humiliate Jesus. It's designed to humiliate Jesus. Now file that away because we're going to come back to that at the end. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. Now, I don't see that much on social media among the Christians. Nope, I don't see that at all. What I see is pound them, speak against them, hate them. They might not say hate, but that's what they're acting. They think differently than me. Get them. Set yourself up against them. Okay. The Spirit of Christ says, Father, forgive the ones who even crucify me, for they don't know what they do. In other words, Jesus is saying, be understanding and patient with people who don't believe the exact same things you believe. Lay down your rights. You don't always have to be right and win. Don't tell Jan that. And they divided his garments and cast lots. Guess where that's from? A psalm that was written about 800 years prior. There's a psalm, Psalm 22, that is fulfilled right there. It's right there in verse 18. Isn't that amazing? There's so many prophecies, folks, that come true in this chapter. And here's one of them. They even divided his garments and cast lots, Psalm 22, 18. And the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he's the Christ, the chosen of God. But the problem is, if he did save himself, he could never have saved us. It's such a worldly way of thinking. The world says don't have anything to do with the cross, sacrifice. In fact, the world's way of thinking has snuck into the church, crept into the church, and it tells us don't talk about sin and sacrifice. Talk about prosperity and wealth. They said, get, get away from the cross. Don't even talk. Get down. Save yourself. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king, save yourself. Not just the Jews, the whole world. Get off the cross. What is that? It's humiliating. The problem is, or the picture is for us, that the way to authority in the kingdom of God is not through getting what you want, but through sacrifice. 
Real authority comes from sacrifice, not bossing people around. And Jesus shows us giving up even his life. An inscription also was written over him in letters, Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, of course, so the whole world could hear. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, if you're the Christ, save yourself and us. In other words, let's get down from here. But the other answered and said, do you not even fear God, seeing you're under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, surely I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now think about it. Between two criminals... Before I get too uh, highfalutin here about my spirituality, I'm one of the criminals. <laughs> I've broken the law of God. The Bible says sin is lawlessness or law-breaking. Who here is a sinner? Well, you all better raise your hand because you've break, broken the law. And I'll get you all on one of the commandments. Here it comes. You say, well, I'm, I'm pretty good on that commandment. Well, you ain't good on this commandment, I'll bet you. Don't covet anything. And I just roasted us all. Paul said that. I struggle with that, Paul said. We all struggle with that. We struggle with the others. We're sinners. We deny God. We're all sinners. And yet here are these two sinners right in between Jesus. Look, one says, let's get down. One says, let's go along with his program. In other words, it's really close, or it's really easy to be very close to Jesus and still miss the boat. You can come to church for 40, 50, 60 years, be really close, and miss the mark. And the mark is this. Do you trust in what Christ has done at the cross? If you do, he says, come, you'll be with me in paradise today. Now, paradise is a whole other thing. We'll talk about that some other time. We've already talked about it, Luke 16. It's also a word, which is fascinating, that the ancients used for a walk with the commander or the person in charge in the gardens. Do you see? He says, you're going to walk with me. We're going to talk together forever in paradise. Well, Verse 44, it was about the sixth hour, that's about noon, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. About this time, he said, it is finished, but that's in a different gospel. Verse 46, and when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he asked, or he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, again, showing that he was in charge Having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God saying, another one, by the way, says, certainly, this is a righteous man. He didn't do anything wrong. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, verse 48, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts in return. But all his acquaintances and the women, God bless the women, who followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. And behold, verse 50, there was a man named Joseph. This was a rich man. He was a council member, a member of the Sanhedrin, a good and just man. 
He and Nicodemus, you can check that out in John 19, 38 and 42, or through 42. He had not consented to their decision indeed. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. Some have actually theorized that they were in this tomb waiting until he died. That's an interesting thought. I don't know about that one. But this man went to Pilate immediately and asked for the body of Jesus. He asked for the body. What a bold thing to do. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. And that day was the preparation. And the Sabbath drew near. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after. And they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices, fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the customs. Now, if you've been traveling with us, you know this. You know this. Christ's death accomplished a lot of stuff. <laughs> the removal of sin. That's a fancy, there's a fancy word for that. <clears throat> it's called expiation. <clears throat> it also removed, listen, the wrath of God. It removes the wrath of God. That's called propitiation. How about that? What other things did the death of Christ accomplish? Well, reconciliation. What does that mean? It means that we can now come back to God. We can be reconciled back to the Father. Redemption. A ransom was paid so that we can be redeemed and fully used. That's what redemption means. Don't you love being redeemed? <laughs> I was running around, were you? Without Jesus, thinking I was doing great stuff and what a life and fantastic, and I was just in a rat race doing nothing. It was nothing. But I've been redeemed, and so have you, which means now you're back in the game and doing what you were intended to do. That's redeemed. And there's so many other things that I can say about what Christ's death accomplished, but those are the major ones. How about this? You know in chapter 24 that he rose again. The ladies found him. They reigned back, and they told the disciples. You know that he went and appeared to these uh, people on the road, these uh, disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he did that amazing Bible study, and the disciples' eyes are opened up, and it's just a grand party. And then Jesus appears to the disciples, and you know this, he makes several appearances to Jesus after, he, or to, to his disciples after he rose again, including folks in Corinthians to 500 people. <laughs> and he made sure he specifically sought out Peter. Oh, because Peter had felt like he had failed him. You know this. And then at the end of chapter 24, the scriptures are opened. I read to you what we should be doing. Tell people that he rose from the dead on the third day and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in all nations. And then you know this in verse 50 of chapter 24. He went out the Mount of Olives, got up to Bethany, and he lifted up his hands, blessed them, and that he was, while he was blessing them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. They worship and return to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. But listen, what, what did his raising from the dead accomplish? So we re read what his death accomplished, his raising from the dead. It shows that he, we, uh, he has an unbelievable power, the power to raise from the dead. Uh, this was his sign from heaven. It's his answer to signs and miracles. If you want to know exactly who I am, the sign that you should look at is my resurrection. 
Jesus said that. You can look at that in Matthew 16. Uh, what else, what other reason, uh, uh, or whatever, what, what else did he accomplish through his rising or uh, defeating death? Well, the Bible tells us that the Holy One would never see corruption. That's in Psalm 1610. Did you know that? And Jesus never saw corruption even after he died. You can look at Acts 13 for that. So Paul could preach in Acts that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And the resurrection is like the receipt on the sacrifice saying everything was accepted, paid in full, of course, and now I accept the sacrifice, the Father says. And Jesus is the first fruit of those going to heaven, which means he's the first fruit, which means there's more coming after, which means he paved the way into heaven for you and I. If he didn't rise again, oh my goodness, we'd be silly to be here. You get that? Okay. That's Luke, but I don't want you to leave just quite yet. You're like, come on, please, let's go. But maybe you're not. Turn to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. Do you know this? Isaiah ministered about 740 A.D. to 680 B.C. What's the year that Jesus was crucified? 32 A.D. So, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. 740 B.C. Sorry about that. Till 680 B.C. Sorry. Jesus is crucified in 32 A.D. So even I can do the math. That's about 770 years before Jesus was crucified Isaiah comes on the scene and ministers and prophesies to the northern kingdom and to the southern kingdom of Judah. And he, in the middle of, a pro, uh, middle of his prophecies, the, words, the Lord speaks this word to him. How many years before Jesus? About 770 or so. Think about that. All of a sudden, here he is prophesying. And there's these servant prophecies that start coming in the late 40s of Isaiah into the early 50s of the chapters. And then all of a sudden, it says this, Who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. But look, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Sound familiar? When Herod and those guys would disingenuous uh, question him, 
Do you ever wonder why he didn't respond and defend himself? Well, he opened not his mouth. He wasn't defending against the people who were not authentic. Isn't that interesting? Plus, he knew he was going to the cross. He didn't have to defend himself. Who here loves to defend yourself when people talk about you? Yeah, just me. No. (laughs) Our Lord opened not his mouth at what we picture the most critical time. He could have made the defense And his defense would have been great. He's the great advocate. And he didn't even open his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent. Not helpless, by the way. Silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison. Folks, this is what was happening. He was was confiscated by Pilate and these guys. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? In other words... He was without child. He had no children. Who was going to live on for him? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. (laughs) He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sins of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. Folks, you and I, we're treading on holy ground. Now you think about this now. Here here you are. You're living in the time of Isaiah's time. You're a rabbi or a Jewish uh, studier or whatever you are, and you love to study the Scriptures, and you're going through Isaiah, and you know that the kingdom has been carried away in the north and man you're wondering and then all of a sudden boom smack dab in Isaiah you say whoa wait a minute here comes a messianic psalm and he's going to grow up as a tender plant out of dry ground how could that happen wait a minute he's not going to be beautiful like Saul and uh, you know Solomon no he's just going to be a plain guy Messiah is going to be plain what that's weird and he's going to be despised and rejected by man. I mean, I wonder if they thought, this, this can't be true. How could this be true? The Messiah is going to gloriously ride in and be beautiful and just majestic and what? And he's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief? I, I can't, what? And we hid our faces from him. What do you mean we hid? We'd run to him. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet he was esteemed and stricken. What do you mean, bore? What? In, 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 in our iniquities? We've, we're keeping the law. What do you mean, born our iniquities? Why does he even need to? He's smitten by God. The Father himself is going to smite him? What? He's going to be chastised for our peace. And by his stripes we are healed. Oh, but wait a minute. There must mean something's wrong with us. Is there something wrong with us? We're like sheep that have gone astray? Yes, 
We are like sheep that have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. Who here loves to get their own way? Oh, just me. You guys are so holy. It's amazing. And on and on and on. But I can't imagine you're reading this and you get down to this part and they made his grave with the wicked but with the rich. How in the world is that going to happen? And you're telling me that all these beautiful things, he's going to bear the iniquities. It seems to be, it seems to me, as I'm studying this back in the, these centuries, these old centuries, he's going to deal with the inner person more than a kingdom. But how could that be? I know he's going to come in a kingdom. And, and then you're telling me that he's going to be, wait a minute, the Messiah, the servant, is going to be counted among the ones who were transgressors? Think about reading that, not knowing what you know. How could it be that he would be numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sin of many? And here's the staggering one. He prayed for the transgressors. The ones who are pinning him up there, and pinning's not the right word. You know, those spikes are this big and they're driving him through his hand and hands and wrists and his feet. And he's up there praying. How could this ever happen? There's no way. And yet I just read you the story or reread it together. <laughs> what do you mean, Rich? Well, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus are the ones who buried him in Joseph's tomb. <laughs> what do you mean he's going to be numbered with the transgressors? Well, what the world meant for humiliation to just pin him, you know, strive the spikes. That's how they would do it. They would be on the ground. And then to do it, and then to lift that thing up, boom, and put it there, and there he is between the two. I wonder if it struck any in the crowd. Oh, my goodness. Isaiah 53. He's numbered among the transgressors. He's told us that we're sinners and we need a Savior. He's come to save us from our sins, and yet we, have, like sheep, have gone astray. But we know that he was wounded for our transgression. He was pierced through, that means, and he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. What's that mean? If you read the Bible, here's what that means. Spiritually, you are healed. God puts into your spiritual bank account his righteousness, and now when you die on this earth, he's going to welcome you in because he sees you as perfectly righteous. That's amazing. You're healed. You're healed spiritually. And yes, folks, I want you to remember this. We are going to be healed phys physically, but it doesn't always mean now. <laughs> he promises we're going to get a glorified, resurrected body. Sometimes we get healed now, sometimes we don't. But we will be healed in the kingdom. So just watch. When you say, well, I prayed for my you know, vertigo to go away and it won't go away. What's the Lord doing? I don't think he's interested in me. Well, we live in a fallen world with fallen things, and sometimes people get cancer or vertigo or sickness, 
And that happens. You have some people that say that verse right there means all of you need to be healthy and wealthy and wise all the time that you live on the earth. And the reality of that is that's not so. If you'll just name it and claim it, you can have health. Well, tell that to Paul. He didn't have it. And if that's true, why aren't these folks down in the hospitals? Go down to the children's hospital today. But you will be healed. This is just for a moment. Now, why did I take you there? Well, I took you there for, because this coincides with the chapter we just read. It's the prediction, 770 or so years prior to the time that Jesus died, through the prophet Isaiah, God spoke and told us what the suffering servant would go through and the reason he would go through it. And now look, folks, here you are all these years later sitting here because this is what Jesus did, because what he did, that's the reason you're sitting here. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray, and these folks are going to come, and they're going to, I think, I didn't ask them, but I think they are, and they're going to lead us in a song. But here's the problem, or not a problem, here's the thing. You can't leave here. (laughs) You can. No one's going to force you. (laughs) You don't want to be like the criminal on the right or the, the, you don't want to be the criminal who wanted him to get down from the cross. You want to surrender your life to the cross. You don't want to leave here if you don't know if you're going to heaven. You don't want to do that. Jesus paid it all. Good song choice, fellas and ladies. Don't leave here without giving your life to Christ, repenting and moving to him. If that's you, or if if you have uh, strayed from God, and you just want to say, man, (laughs) Lord, I just want to take up my cross and keep going, and I need help like we all do, then what I want you to do is I want you to come up and talk with me after, okay? Don't leave here without doing business with God. Let's pray. Well, Lord, thank you so much for this morning and uh, your word, and uh, Lord, just what you've accomplished. And it was predicted (laughs) in all the scriptures. And Isaiah 53 is a really pointed one, uh, uh, one that just jumps out at us. And we're thankful that you give us that assurance in the prophecies that you came in a trough amongst the animals (laughs) to die among the criminals. Lord, we give our whole lives to that, to you, to all the things you've accomplished. And if there's somebody here, Lord, I pray they'd give their lives to you. And if there's somebody who's strayed (laughs) or feels they've strayed, I pray they'd come back and we'd come back to you. We're like sheep, Lord, all of us, including the ones speaking We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.